Hey everybody, welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. We're back, and uh, I know it's been a little uh, uh, inconsistent in terms of our episodes, but Isaac and I have been navigating a global pandemic, as you have. Yeah, not too big. Global pandemic, economic crisis. <laughs> just the, falling apart. Just the little stuff. Did you stuff. Do enough podcast, though? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, how you doing, Isaac? Just before we get to the episode, in the midst of all the crazy, you holding up okay? And yeah, I mean, it's like everybody; it's difficult. You and I are both local church leaders, so a um, lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of confusion. Yeah, um, and so hopefully this this conversation will aid that, help that, and I really think it think it will. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, the confusion piece, especially. Uh, not not just with coronavirus, but now, you know, us recording this in early June, we're sort of seeing the nation in protest uh, in, in light of the George Floyd tragedy, which sort of galvanized something that has been ongoing for a long time. And everything I'm hearing from the people that I am trying to serve and lead and guide, and I know you're hearing very similar things right now, Isaac, is... Um, Folks are trying to navigate how to just even make sense of what's happening and how to form a, a Christian, Jesus-centered, gospel-centric view on things. That's becoming increasingly challenging now because of all the noise, right? And yeah. uh, I mean, you're seeing that in your church, I assume, with your people, yeah? Yeah, it's everywhere. No one knows what to believe because new sources change and you trust this new source. You don't trust this one. And so there's just, just confusion on like, you know, what, what feet do I have? What, what ground do I have to set my feet upon? Yeah. Well, for followers of Jesus, you know, we, for, we forget this far too easily, but the reality is we have a foundation and it's a timeless foundation. It's not a foundation built on uh, social media, you know, digital algorithms. It's a foundation built on um, the beginning of time when God creates a good world and then things fall apart. And then things, uh, redemption comes in the by you know in the way of Jesus and His life, death, and resurrection. Um, and so today we're going to sort of try to go back to that and ask the question: How do we live in the present with that timeless foundation? In other words, how do we build uh, a framework for living wisely in this really challenging time? And so to do that, we are talking to our friend Brett McCracken. Uh, Brett is uh, many of you know him because you've you've read several of his books. He's the author of books like Hipster Christianity, Gray Matters. His most recent book was a book called Uncomfortable about Christian community that came out a few years ago. He's also the senior editor for the Gospel Coalition, so you've read many of his pieces there. Uh, he's um, He also serves in a local church in uh, Southern California. And uh, he actually has a new book coming out next year in February of 2021 that's called The Wisdom Pyramid. And some of you have heard of this before. It's something that he actually developed on his blog a couple of years ago where he takes like the food pyramid and develops different components of what we might uh, use and lean into to form and, and shape wisdom in our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And so this uh, this conversation is 
fascinating. It's interesting. We do a deep dive um, into the different components of forming wisdom in our lives so that we might navigate these really sort of uh, uncertain, treacherous waters of like not knowing uh, who to trust and what to trust and, you know, what information is true and untrue. Um, This is going to be both inspiring and pragmatically helpful. So uh, I really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I think you will too. Uh, This is our chat with Brett McCracken. Enjoy. Hey, Brett, thanks so much for uh, jumping on and joining us today. Thank you guys so much for having me. You know, to get into this conversation, before we get into the wisdom pyramid, which for me personally and as a church leader has been a resource that I've gone back to for myself and for people in our church uh, countless times in the last couple of years, before we get into the wisdom pyramid, what I'd like to do is frame sort of the issue at hand that the wisdom pyramid helps us navigate. And it's um, what not just you, but so many have called uh, an epistemological crisis. Um, so I'm going to hand this off to Isaac here because he he does so much work along these lines. Isaac, before we sort of get into this, define for us what we mean by that big fancy word epistemology and why mm-hmm. is there a crisis of epistemology today? Yeah, epistemology is just a big scary word, but the definition is actually pretty simple. It's just the philosophy of how do you know that you know? How do you know what you know? Um, and there's a, a big version of that and a small version of it. Like the small version of it would be, how do you know what sources to trust on the internet? Like, how do you know what is true? In the philosophical sense, though, in a much larger sense, you can talk about, how do you know that your five senses can be trusted? What presuppositions are you standing upon to say that, well, I saw something, so therefore it is true? How do you know you're not living in uh, the matrix, AI type type of stuff? So uh, epistemology is big and small, the whole spectrum. Essentially, it's how do you know what you know? How do you know what is true? And what grounds are you standing on epistemologically to, to claim that? Yeah. And, and I'll throw the question back out at both of you, Brett, uh, maybe you can go first and then Isaac jump in here. Um, what is the crisis of epistemology right now? Describe, I think most people listening sort of to the description of epistemology, maybe feel viscerally like, okay, yeah, I can see why there's a problem because I don't quite know how I know anything, you know, because I'm told so many different things on so many different mediums all the time. But talk specifically about the time that we're in. We're recording this in early June. You know, Brett, when we scheduled this interview with you, it was, you know, weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, uh, actually right before... Um, we had this strange convergence. We were in sort of coronavirus world. And then right after we scheduled the interview with you, we have the George Floyd tragedy and then just the nation, you know, um, in uproar and protest. So, so much information coming at us. Um, What is the epistemological crisis? Brett, why don't you go first and then Isaac jump in here? Yeah, I mean, it's... um... It's older and longer than the the internet age, but I think the internet age that we live in has very much escalated the crisis. And so, in my in my book on the wisdom pyramid um, that we'll be talking about a little bit more in this podcast, I have three chapters at the beginning of the book that kind of outline the contours of the crisis. Um, and and the three chapters are looking at three different aspects of 
how technology, particularly the internet, um, amplifies the the crisis of knowing how do we know what to trust. So the three aspects I highlight are the too much problem of information, uh, the too fast nature of information today, and the too focused on me, the kind of individualistic orientation, the way that you can kind of curate, you know, your own kind of sources just to fit you and and what your preconceived notions and ideas are. So yeah, that's that's what it is in short. The too much problem is maybe the, the biggest one. You know, we're just overwhelmed with information. Like that's what we feel so viscerally right now. Like with coronavirus, we all of us are, you know, constantly being bombarded every day with this article, this study, this projection, you know, this expert saying this, and then another expert saying the complete opposite. And, you know, it's just overwhelming. There's so much information out there that it's only natural that we begin to have a crisis of knowing because how do you know what to trust it's just it's too much and then compounding that is the too fast nature of everything moves so fast in the digital age um it that is to the detriment of truth i think and you're seeing this even with like mainstream media you know falling into the speed trap of wanting to get information out there naturally you want to get information out there about whatever the current crisis is but when you move too fast you're prone to error and i think that we're seeing so many um, quote-unquote experts otherwise trustworthy um, institutions of journalism moving so fast that they're they're kind of um, showing that they're they're prone to error and and also you know uh, fallacious things um you know, conspiracy theories, fake news, all of that travels so fast. Like you can have an entire narrative that's completely fake, that's not based in reality, make the make the rounds on social media within a day. And so naturally enough of that happens and people are like, I don't trust anything. Like I'm not going to ever believe anything I see on the internet. Um, and then the third aspect is the kind of individualistic orientation. And this, this is kind of goes bigger and further back in history. We've been on kind of this look within kind of um you know uh, kind of romantic philosophy think about thoreau and and other philosophers like look within yourself to find truth um and it's this gradual erosion of truth as something external to the self um and now it's mainly just my truth right we hear that a lot like speak your truth live your truth mm-hmm. and i think the internet and the nature of social media and um smart phones and all that um, just plays into it so so well right we can each kind of have our own personalized curated media experience no two are seeing because everyone has opted into their own sources they've kind of created their own you know personalized reality and so again that's just making um making this crisis of epistemology even worse so i'll stop there and, and let isaac um, well, as well. Jay and I have been talking uh, a lot recently, and I recorded a, a short video um, on how some of uh, a heresy in the early church called Gnosticism is sort of resurfacing sort of the elements of it. And one of the, the traits of Gnosticism was that pretty much all the, the wisdom and knowledge that was out there from your typically, your typically trusted sources was was wrong and the way to have true knowledge was this secret knowledge that you receive through personal experience and maybe your your local sect of, of it um and the parallel is yeah. fascinating because 
you have right now in our country, as you said, people not trusting any of the traditional institutions that you relied on for information. And they're seeing the narratives and the spin. You have that slam into what we'll call, what I'll call the the Disney narrative is that your heart is good and pure. And if you just listen to that, then things will be great. And so people are now, the knowledge that they trust is, is, is an experiential knowledge that is for them personally or just their tribe. Just like the Gnostics, if you had your tribe, you relied on, you, you had some secret knowledge for the tribe. And so um, now what we're seeing is that work itself out before our eyes. It's personal experiential tribal knowledge that filters everything else through through that lens um and then what's even worse is social media through the algorithms can just confirm that because they know what you like and they mm. feed it to you one other thing i'll add just on the back of that um related to the kind of personalization of um, truth is um the dynamic of kind of feelings um trumping facts and it's almost like um if something is traumatic to me personally or kind of um, triggers me then the truth of it the facts of it are dismissed and they're almost inadmissible into into debate and conversation if it if it's traumatic to me so there's almost like this weaponization of the word trauma um, against truth and so it used to be that um you know the truth was found in contention right it, it was in debate it was in letting all the voices be heard and just go at it and truth would emerge. But now the rules of the game have changed such that you can't even, some voices can't even be brought to the table because the other side is so, um, you know, triggered and it traumatized by it. So just this weekend, two examples of that um, on social media that I saw, the JK Rowling. I don't know if you guys saw that. Yeah. She, she posted a tweet that was about, you know, transgenderism and, you know, I won't get into it, but um, it was crazy how many people were just so triggered and traumatized by that, that it was like, you can't say that, like you can't. And it was a very basic statement she made about like, you can't have same sex attraction if the category of sex, male and female, doesn't exist. Um, and then the other example is what's happening at the New York Times with, um, a, you know, the, the New York Times opinion section ran an, an op-ed last week that was by a senator and it was you know whatever you think about the the content of it that's beside the point the the question is can you even um give voice to certain opinions anymore if it offends a certain segment of the population and the opinion editor you know was forced to resign and um, so that's those are just examples of another aspect of the way truth has been um, subverted behind and beneath um, feelings and um, personal kind of identity. Yeah, people in our culture right now on two ends, I'd say one with pain mm -hmm. and then with experience, they take something that's virtuous and good and right and they, they hijack it for an ideological purpose and they mm. take advantage of people's pain in the appearance of virtue to make their agenda go forward and you see that all i mean you see that all the time whenever there's a tragedy the the vultures come in and they don't a lot of people i mean i'm sure there are but a lot of people they don't care about 
this pain. They're not caring about the person who heard that comment in that way. They're just using that pain. And now it's, as you said, it's been weaponized to silence the other side rather than say, Hey, can we just come and talk about this and reason through this? And we're seeing, we're seeing that almost daily because there's so much pain it's happening daily. It's been magnified. Yeah. I just, um, I just finished a, a book last week that's been out for a couple of years called love thy body by Nancy Piercy. And she, yeah, love that book. yeah, she gets into all of these series of dualisms, right. That have developed. And that's sort of what you guys are getting at that we have separated in so many ways, just to, to the point of this conversation, we have separated, um, truth. And this is going to sound really dramatic, but I think it's true. And it's what you guys are saying. We've separated the, the, notion of truth from reality, like an embodied reality. And now truth has become just uh, uh, something that sort of floats in the ether of your own personal private, which no longer stays private. It becomes amplified on social media and stuff, but um, in your own personal private sort of, you know, emotional spaces. And Mm -hmm. that's the whole point is that for so many people who are listening right now, followers of Jesus, people I've had conversations with, people who um, have texted me, you know, even though it's on a text, reiterating the point that they want this to be a private conversation because they feel the pressure when they go on social media and the internet, they feel the pressure from their social circles and their sort of digital social circles to present a particular view uh, or opinion that falls in line with essentially um, whoever is loudest, you know, on social media (laughs) and to not do that, it risks ostracized, you know, being ostracized and marginalized by, um, sort of the mainstream of, of your social circles. So along those lines, I think what I'm hearing a lot as a church leader, I know this is true for Isaac as well, is uh, a lot of particularly young, but of all ages, people who are trying to faithfully follow Jesus, navigating this world, this, uh, you know, 2016 Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth, right? That was literally the word of the year. That's the world we live in. And without even knowing it, the Oxford Dictionary, maybe they knew it, they were commenting, there's social commentary, like, you can call it whatever you want, but the reality is we live in a post-truth truth like whatever this version of truth is is not actually truth we live in this whole other thing and and so as as followers of jesus today are navigating this really tenuous situation where we're sort of an anchorless people we don't know where we can sort of go to find the bedrock upon which we can build and develop a christ-centered gospel-centered worldview um you know, into that sort of fray, you, Brett, you offer this really, really helpful, again, it's been immensely helpful for me and the people I serve for these last couple of years, this helpful tool called the Wisdom Pyramid, which you mentioned earlier, it's going to be a book that'll come out in early 2021, um, in February, <laughs> so we'll, it's 2021, right? I don't even know what day yeah. or time it is. So what, it feels knows, like 2020 man. has been 10 years. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's t- 2021. There was, there was a meme of um, Back to the Future where they, they were going to send um, Michael J. Fox. They're like, you got to go back, man. It's like the perfect <laughs> setup for Back to the Future Part 4. You got to go back and fix 2020, man. You have to go back. Oh, man. That'd be <laughs> awesome. Make his parents fall in love and everything will be fine. 
Um, so yeah, you offer this wisdom pyramid, uh, and I don't want to give too much of it away. I'd love to hear you talk about it, but it's sort of based on kind of like the classic food pyramid a little bit that we saw when Mm -hmm. we were kids growing up, like a nutritious diet. Here's how you, you know, um, (laughs) so talk about the wisdom pyramid. Talk about, first of all, talk about sort of what compelled you to develop this thing and how the idea even came about. Uh, and then we can get into each component of the pyramid. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So um, the idea originally came about a couple of years ago. I was giving a talk at Canvas Conference in Portland, and the topic was, um, I think they asked me to speak on how to find joy in a post-truth fake news world. And um, at the time, the the post-truth Oxford English Dictionary thing was fairly new, and fake news and these terms were fairly new. Um, so, uh, I decided to kind of come up with this, this food pyramid illustration to walk people through how to kind of like, as everything crumbles in terms of our truth and institutions and what we trust, like we have to start from scratch. We need to like rebuild our knowledge diet from scratch. So what's the guide to that? How do we do that? So that was the thought with the pyramid. And I I was, you know, inspired by the food pyramid of, of our childhoods and, that idea of what's the most foundational group kind of knowledge group what what are the other um, areas and i knew that i didn't want to like say never be on the internet right never be on social media because that's not practical in today's world so it had to be on the pyramid but it's all about proper placement right it's all about the orientation of our diet and and what gets more attention so dessert, right, is still in the food pyramid. It's not like they're saying never have a cupcake or junk food. It's just at the top, meaning the least important. So I put social media and the internet and kind of those categories a little bit higher in the pyramid in the smaller groups um, used less frequently. Um, and then we can talk about what I put at the, the base as well. But yeah, the idea is just to give people a practical guide to um, orient their habits of intake because we all know that um, what we take in not only physically with food but um, mentally and the ideas we take in shape our soul it's it's how we're formed as humans we are we are permeable creatures like we aren't just these isolated uh, entities that are never influenced by anything external to us like we are deeply shaped by the external things that we we opt to uh, ingest and that's as true for ideas and information as it is for food hmm. and so um yeah i'm just i'm really wanting to help guide christians i don't think we're gonna move the needle we're not gonna solve this crisis unless we really pay attention to what are we taking in and in what proportion uh, and where are we putting our focus so that's kind of the heart behind the wisdom pyramid and the subtitle of the book um is it gets at that post-truth idea so the full title is the wisdom pyramid. The subtitle is feeding your soul in a post-truth world. Hmm. So yeah, it, it really is an answer to that post-truth problem that we're experiencing. Yeah. We'll uh, put a link to the wisdom pyramid on the show notes for, um, for this episode. And also if you're just listening, you don't, you can just go on, you know, uh, Google and search Brett McCracken 
wisdom pyramid and it'll pop right up uh, if you want to take a look at it because visually it's really helping uh it's really helpful so i I just want to go sort of piece by piece at the very bottom of the pyramid the bedrock the foundation you know is the bible that's what you place at the very bottom um and and i want to try to get pragmatic as much as possible for folks who are listening to this sort of trying to navigate this stuff in real time and in real life with the Bible as the foundation, I think intellectually most Christians know that. You know, they're not surprised by that. They say, yeah, of course. Although there is a whole stream now where, again, influenced by this sort of post-truth dualistic reality, there are there is a whole stream of Christians who say, no, it's like how you feel. That, that's not how they would say it. What they would say is like, it's how the spirit is guiding and leading you, which that's a mm. whole other episode we could have. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. for now, you know, the Bible, uh, why the mm. Bible at the bottom? And maybe most importantly, pragmatically, what do you mm. mean? What does it mean to make the Bible sort of the primary source of our diet uh, as, yeah. as followers of Jesus? Yeah, I mean, it does, it does feel like kind of eat your broccoli, right? Like we all know that it's good for us. And we all, most Christians would agree like, yeah, that the Bible has to be the number one um, staple of our diet. Um, I think experientially, though, we all must admit that we've not made it the staple of our diet. And um, we've flipped the pyramid in many ways, at least our generation, younger folks, digital natives have really made their smartphones and social media that that kind of um, base layer. So yeah, I mean, the, the, the kind of rationale um, that I talk about um, in the chapter on the Bible in the book is um, this is God's word. Like it's the very word of the God who created all things, like the divine, perfect, infallible God. It's his word. So naturally, if we're going to listen to any voice, any anything speaking into our lives, that is the most important voice. It's you know, it's the eternally true wisdom, right? Uh, Proverbs talks about wisdom was there when God created the world, like the personification of wisdom. So all wisdom everywhere comes from God. So it has to be the foundation. What does it look like practically? You know, um, I talk about little things like um, just the habit of reading your Bible before you check social media every morning is, is one way that I'm trying to implement this in my life. Um, I think in addition to just reading scripture and recognizing the importance of that, another function of it being in the foundation of the wisdom pyramid is that it's kind of the check and balance for everything else. So um, everything else in the pyramid to some degree is fallible. Um, Not that they're not authorities we should trust, but scripture's the authority above all authorities. It's the one kind of infallible authority that's what protestants believe Uh, and so um it's it's a great way to check everything else against that if there's something that you read that doesn't seem quite right like check it against scripture if there's a feeling that you have in kind of that um the kind of look within source of wisdom that's popular in our day and age like um let scripture um be um, a check and balance against that rather than what often happens which is we take our internal truth and we go to scripture to kind of pick and choose things that fit with it rather than um, going to scripture to let it form us and let it form our truths. Um, so those are just a few comments, but there's a lot 
to say about scripture and its place in our lives, but I'll just stop there. Yeah. Isaac, you're, um, you're not just one of the most biblically minded people I know. You have a deep personal love of the scriptures. Uh, talk a little bit, and I know this is true in your life where the scriptures are the bedrock for your spiritual nourishment and your formation into Christ-likeness. Uh, talk pragmatically for you what this looks like to have the Bible, our daily bread, essentially, as the bedrock of your like as a personal, just follower of Jesus, leader in the church. What does it look like in your life? Yes. What I'm trying to to do is get people to see that um, just how awesome the Bible is. And like, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, we, we, we talk about them a lot. Um, it's beating the dead horse, but like Tim Mackey and John of the Bible project are showing people that in a way that like people are finally like they're, they're, they're seeing it. And I don't know if it had to do with our style of preaching in the last 30 years, our style of teaching but people really weren't understanding like how awesome the book is like the the bible just on a literary value is so beautiful it is so good the plot twists are so good like i whenever i'm i'm preaching at my church sometimes i'll just stop and go you guys you don't know how awesome that do you do you see what they just did you see what the book of jonah just did here it just snuck in behind you and ripped apart your presuppositions and you didn't even know it and it what I think we need to do is really demonstrate as teachers and leaders, just how good the book is. There was like a while where you just sort of felt like it was, Hey, the Bible is the word of God. It's authoritative. So just follow it. This is what it says. And you didn't teach people like the beauty of this, like how could you not want to, this is so, so good. So I'm hopeful. I'm seeing that happen. And I'm actually really hopeful that Christians are going to start to, treat the Bible as the bottom of the pyramid, precisely because when you look out there, you see ever-changing truth that is is different every single day. And there's agendas and there's biases. And so my hope and prayer is that people just go as a church, and this may transition into the next, to the next phase of, of the pyramid. As a church, we've had this book, man, for thousands of years. We've had this book. Um, and it's been the life source for our people, the church, the people of God, of every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's been our book, and it's given us life. And so my hope is that the, the local church embodies not only the authoritative nature of the Bible, but the beauty and the goodness of it and help people really desire so that people no longer look at the Bible like broccoli. But it's like a, it's like a, we'll flip it and make it a keto pyramid, man. It's a keto pyramid. It's like bacon in the morning is your breakfast and you want to eat it. Right. Yeah, that takes us, that that segues really nicely to the the next sort of level up and it's still sort of part of the base foundation. And this one might be tricky for some people, especially right now, uh, as Mm. the church, the local church and local churches are sort of, you know, they're they're on the, um, yeah, they're on the defensive a lot of times, particularly because of social media and things that are going on. But Brett, you've got the local church, we've got the church and local uh, church and tradition sort of as the next level up. Um, Talk specifically to folks who are listening and they're like, man, I don't know. I've had some pretty bad experiences in the church. The church has sort of failed uh, to live up to 
expectations in a variety of ways, both personal and corporate. Um, why the local church? Why does that matter? Why is it such a crucial part of sort of the base level of nourishment for the follower of Jesus? Yeah, no, those are good. I mean, it's, it is one of the, the hardest uh, aspects for a lot of people in our generation because the church is messy and it's full of messy people, messy sinners. Uh, in many ways, the logic of going to a church week after week just kind of goes against, flies in the face of um, lived experience in today's world. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, read my last book, Uncomfortable, to, mm-hmm. to kind of get my big case for the importance of the local church in spite of its warts. But um, when, it, when it comes to uh, the church as a source of wisdom, uh, I'll talk about two aspects. So there's the local church community and then the church tradition. So the church as a spatial reality, like an embodied spatial reality. Jay, you know a lot about that. You've written about that. Um, but also the church is a temporal reality across time. And both of those are great sources of wisdom. Uh, I think um, when I talked earlier about like one of the dynamics of our epistemological crisis is the kind of me-centeredness of it, how it's really just kind of a look within yourself, like sort of everything else is not trustworthy, so I'm just going to trust myself. Um, I think that that um, falls apart pretty quickly when you when you start to live it out. Um, because we, we, we don't flourish when we're just left to our own devices. And there's, there's a wisdom in community in, in an age of individualism. You, you know, a community is a gift for you in terms of giving you um, guardrails, giving you kind of feedback, giving you mirrors so that it's not just you defining yourself, but you have others who can know you and help define your identity. Um, I think that the, the, experience and the rhythms of church community also just help form us to be more um, externally oriented, more more oriented towards God than, than ourselves. Uh, it pulls us outside of ourselves. It makes us more oriented towards serving others, compassion towards others. Um, there's nothing like being a part of a messy church community where you're constantly, you know, having friction with people who are very different from you. Um, to cultivate um, patience and long suffering and humility and all these virtues that are hard to develop when it's just you, you know, living your own kind of truth and your own personal experience. So there's those, I think there's, those are a few aspects of community, uh, the community aspect of the people of God that um, really help us become wise. And then there's the like fact of the church's existence throughout, you know, 2000 years of Christian history Um, And what has, there's so much about the church that has remained remarkably the same, right? The same basic uh, orthodox truths that the church has confessed for all this time, the same rhythms of worship, right? People have gathered together and taken communion and prayed and heard the word of God preached for thousands of years. Like what else in our world has had that continuity? And I think in an age of like, speed like i talked about like the speed of the internet age is working against our wisdom i think that we really need to lean into those things that are time tested and have endured and um, the church is is a great uh, source of wisdom in that regard so i really push people in the book to avail themselves of christian um thinkers and um you know theologians from times past and read christian biographies like just 
get to know your history as Christians. I think one of the Achilles heels of evangelicalism is that we tend to be very ahistorical, anachronistic. We think that we're kind of reinventing the wheel with every generation and that we have to just kind of <laughs> find a new way to do church for every um, epoch in history. But um, it's, it's much healthier and um, much more wise to uh, see ourselves as part of a continuous story. Um, it just, again, it just gets us outside of that, that kind of pride of like me and just like our generation has to do this differently. And like, I have thought about this, but no one else in Christian history has thought about this. Like it, even like the, the kind of race and justice conversation, like there are like unique to our times dynamics to that conversation, but this has been a problem and an issue and something that Christians have wrestled with um, for centuries. And um, if you're not leaning into that history, you don't have a, a context from which to draw upon. And context is just so crucial for truth and for, yeah, developing wisdom. It, it seems, it, yeah, it seems to me one of the real dangers, and and it's sort of coming to light in recent days and weeks, and 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 even months now with COVID nineteen. It's exactly what you're saying that we've lost all sense of history, um, and I, you know, the stuff at the top of the pyramid, uh, social media and the internet, particularly social media. It strikes me that the very design of the medium sort of forces us to think in the present and uh, to speak in ways that, um, you know, if I have to grab your attention and hold your attention in 280 characters, I have mm -hmm. to add shock value. Uh, and I have to add some, even if it's fake novelty, some sense of novelty, which then leans me into critiquing everything that came before and to try to tell you in 280 characters that what, what I'm saying right now is new and fresh and has never been said before and everything before this was wrong, so you should pay attention. You know, Isaac, one of the things I so deeply appreciate about you and um uh, have appreciated about our friendship. It's been beneficial for me as a Christian and as a church leader is your real love of and uh, the way you anchor yourself in thousands of years of history, uh, of church history, 2,000 years of Christian church history, and even longer than that, sort of the history of the unfolding story of God and his people. Um, I want to ask you along these lines, you know, when we talk about the tradition of the church, as Brett is mentioning, how, how do you develop that sort of, I mean, this might be a dumb question, but how, how does that come about? How do you get to a place uh, as a church leader and as a follower of Jesus where you begin to look with a long view, not just ahead, but behind you, all that's come before to try to sort of formulate a worldview and a posture to the world? Yeah, you got to know that you're far dumber than you think you are. <laughs> um, and what I mean by that is sort of what was hinted at earlier was that, um, Jay, you said you have to do something inflammatory to be seen on, on social media. And you also have to um, say something unique that stands out. If I'm and, and if you say something unique, you might be the first person to have thought of that. And God bless you. 
but you might be the first person to say that because everyone else knew it was wrong. Um, <laughs> it didn't make sense. It was bad theology. So, so being unique doesn't mean necessarily cool in the social media world to make it attention, but you might've just divorced yourself from 2000 years of brilliant Christian thinkers. And so, um, if I'm approaching the incarnation, I, I want to know what Athanasian, Athanasius has to say about that because he thought about it longer and harder than I did. I want to know what he thinks about the triune nature of God <clears throat> because his life depended on it, <laughs> you know, type of thing. Um, and so we have a, a rich tradition of people. So I think the first step really to answer your question is um, trying to humble yourself before the Lord, the Bible, and the people who have gone before you. They're... they're they're a lot smarter than you know, and you're not as wise as you think you are. Hmm. Back in the day, you really had to do something to, to have people want to listen to your words. Like now everyone has a platform. Everyone has a platform. And so you think you should immediately have something to say uh, because you have, you got five, 500 people that that'll listen. It's like, man, you don't know the wisdom that came before you. You don't know how much thought and tears and prayers went in to establish the church's history. And so just walk humbly with your God and you'll gravitate to people who are wiser than you. That's great. Brett, next up on the pyramid is one that uh, might be um, surprising for people. It may be a little tricky, but you wrote uh, the next up uh, above the Bible and the church on the next layer would be mm -hmm. nature and beauty. Um, talk about that. What do you mean by that nature and beauty mm -hmm. as a part of sort of forming our, our wisdom, uh, profile? Yeah. So in the, in the new version of the pyramid that's coming out with a book, I'd separate nature and beauty into two separate chapters. So I'll give them kind of their own treatment here, but nature, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was most excited about writing my chapter on nature because I think there is such, um, wisdom that can come if we just, acknowledge the reality of the physical created world right like um to kind of get at stuff jay you've written about with the analog stuff and the embodied nature of the church and what we were talking about with nancy Piercy earlier like and how we've split we've divorced this kind of cerebral disembodied idea world idea reality from a, a physical kind of material embodied reality that's where nature is the source of wisdom it grounds us in the physical reality like the real <laughs> reality um and in in a digital age where we we can we can live our entire days right through zoom screens through social media screens we can have avatars where our, our even our identity as many people know know it um isn't really connected to our physical reality like there's no it's no surprise to me that things like transgenderism are a uniquely contemporary phenomenon you, you know you didn't find people in the pre-digital age really talking about their their identity being different in terms of gender identity being different from their physical sex like that's a that's an idea that can be born it can it can arise because we live in this technological age where you can really define yourself. You can understand reality completely apart from the physical world. And it's, it's um, yeah, just um, genetics and biology and um, it's physical reality. So that's kind of the gist of it. You know, there was a, <clears throat> a headline I read in the LA Times a couple of years ago that said 
we may live in a post-truth era, but nature does not. And I think that gets at it, right? Like the, the weather, you know, whether it's raining or not raining has no, it has no opinion on politics or what you think about it. Like it's either raining or it's not like (laughs) the world God created is, it just is. And by submitting to its kind of there-ness, there's a wisdom in that. We can't just have an opinion about, you know, whether, um, you know, the law of gravity is, is a thing, like it is a thing and we can't fly <laughs> even if our identity wants to be able to fly. Like there are some limitations that we have as humans that come through nature and God created those limitations and it's good to embrace it. So there's a lot more I, I can re- get into, but, but yeah. I remember um, on that point when, when the flowers and the trees started to blossom in my neighborhood, when we were in shelter in place, um, it moved me. It was, it was a profound moment, like almost to to tears about um, the beauty and glory of God was that I'm sheltering in place. There's economic disaster. Everyone's panicking and the flowers don't give a crap. They opening up and speaking his glory and the seasons remind me of the resurrect. This is the resurrection of, you know, it was just, it was, it was a profound moment, just like nature. Nature yeah. don't care about that, man. They're going to, the rocks are going to sing his praise. The heavens are going to declare his glory. Um, even while I'm stressed out as a pastor trying to figure yeah. out, you know, what in the world are we going to do type of thing. So it was, it was weird. It was, a, it was like a, a super powerful, it was like, are you about to cry over some flowers <laughs> blossoming right now? No, I totally did the same thing. I had the exact same experience. Like in the early days of lockdown, like we would go on walks along this path that is near our neighborhood and it was our sanity. Like I think it's, it's everyone's sanity in moments of crisis and despair to go outside. Like why, like why are national parks where everyone's rushing to try to go to right now, if they can, if they're open, because yeah. there's there's a comfort in the 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 kind of indifference of nature to human kind of craziness and chaos like and and it's a gift you know it's a gift of perspective like when i go outside and look at the stars and see the grandeur of it and the bigness of it like to be reminded of my smallness and the smallness of whatever controversy on twitter occupied my mind today is just such a gift and it's again, it, it speaks to that big picture long view yeah. that has been coming up a lot in this conversation. Like when we're so presentist and we're so focused on our little world, our little problems, like that's not wise to have to be wise is to have this big view mm. and, and nature gives us that. Talk about beauty. How does beauty also inform um, some of the bigness, our smallness? lifting mm-hmm. our gaze maybe from the sort of trite, you know, stuff that yeah. we make so big, it make it such a big deal. Talk about beauty and the yeah. differentiation there specifically from nature and, and its importance. Yeah. I think they're related in many respects, which is why in the original graphic, I had them on the same kind of level. Um, but I think beauty, like it uniquely um, kind of um, stills us in a, in a busy, busy bodied age where we're so frenetic and we're so pragmatic that we feel like we have to spend every minute doing something and saying something. And, you know, just technology allows us to do that, right? And we can fill every 
space in our lives with something productive instead of just going on a walk and enjoying the beauty of it we have to listen to a podcast or we have to like listen to a book on tape uh, and i think beauty just reminds us of sabbath i think beauty is very tied to the theological idea of sabbath um, when god created the world and, and created a day to just rest and enjoy what he had just created that's kind of the beginning of beauty in in some respects because beauty is nothing else other than being able to pause and slow down longer long enough to take notice of something you don't you don't notice beauty when you're just in a flurry of activity trying to go from thing to thing you have to sit you know still you sit before um a movie for two hours that's the only way you can appreciate its beauty you sit still before monet's water lilies in a museum like you have to have a moment of pause where you can appreciate beauty because beauty is is superfluous it's it's something that doesn't kind of um fit into our pragmatic kind of um efficiency it's something that doesn't have to exist and it it's that's where its beauty resides is in its very superfluity so um yeah it's tied to sabbath it's tied to rest so in the chapter on beauty i talk about the wisdom of sabbath the wisdom of rest and and again it's kind of our limitations as humans like we have to sleep we have to rest like you're not going to be a very wise person if you try to fill every minute with productivity um to, to make space in your life to to dance to have music you know to laugh to stop and smell the roses like that's gonna be more conducive to your wisdom that's great genesis one um speaks about god creating the trees um so they have stuff that's good to eat but then that they're they're good or pleasing to the eye the trees mm. do two things there's a functional purpose and then an aesthetic purpose there's beauty in the tree and there's a function in the tree and it's really interesting man there's we're we're here uh kind of bay area california and um if you notice at least where we're at there's new, when there's new housing developments um they they look and feel different than houses that were built in the 70s 80s and 90s one the the yards are smaller and the house is bigger um, and then two, because the front yards are smaller, there's no trees. When you see trees, there's short trees. There's no big trees. There's no big trees. Um, where if you go in older neighborhoods, you might find an oak tree that's been there since you moved in decade, decades ago. And I'm telling you, I don't want, I, it, it seems like an exaggeration. There's something there with that. The yeah. big trees that have been there for a long time, they do something to the human soul and when you remove them there's something going on even in the way we build our neighborhoods because what in part of what it means to be human is that we look at trees functionally and for mm. their beauty and mm. not only are we not stopping to behold the majesty of the old tree we've taken them away from our housing areas mm. they're not there even our trees are here today and gone tomorrow <laughs> and it's like mm. our architecture and the way we plan to live is ref is reflective yeah. of the busyness of life. And it's not good, man. It's not good yeah. for our souls. It's yeah. bad. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the next 
stage up on the pyramid before we get to sort of the top level there that we've been talking yeah. about with the internet and social media and all of that is uh, books. And, um, mm. you know, that, that sounds all well and good on the surface, but you don't just mean like any book, just go read a book, you know, anything that's not a tweet, go read something. Uh, you're talking about specific types of books, books that can sort of form us and not just inform, but form us in yeah. particular ways. Um, you know, question first for you, Brett, what do you mean by books? What types of books? Yeah. And then for both of you guys, I'd love to hear again, practically, as practically as possible, because I think people are fascinated by this sort of thing for both of you. Uh, how, how do you develop a reading list? How do you know what to read? You know, I think that's a question I get a lot. It's like, how'd you find that book? And you quoted that person. How'd you know that was a good book? So first, Brett, talk about the importance of books and good books and how they form mm -hmm. us um, and form wisdom. And then for both of you, just talk about how you do that pragmatically. Yeah. Um, so... I just read an article by Andy Crouch this week that um, talked about how in times of crisis, like go read a book. And that seems counterintuitive because like in the urgency of the moment, when things are moving fast, like it's like who has time for books? Like it seems more logical to just like read as many tweets as you can, like be up on the kind of changing day to day thing. But Andy Crouch is saying, no, like what we need in a time of complex crisis is context. And we need to just go deeper and kind of wider in the context. And so that's where books are a value. Like they, they force us to go deeper into one topic, one idea, one author's point of view, and to live there for an extended period of time. So again, it has to do with kind of um, pausing and going slow enough, right? Like in a speedy age where we're so wanting to do things instantly and we're used to kind of getting pragmatic things done little bits of information in our minds instantly a book is an investment but that's exactly why it's so crucial right we're we're going into a space we're learning a about a topic in a more extended way um, and i think books offer connections uh, in two two senses they can connect us to people other perspectives right and that's where like empathy can be cultivated through reading books um, by spending time with someone who's different from you through their writing over an extended period of time, like, man, that can develop such healthy empathy and it can challenge our perce perceptions about the way the world is by, by walking in someone else's shoes for a bit. Uh, and also connections in the, in the synthesis uh, sense of the word. Like, I, I love those moments in reading a book where I have that kind of light bulb moment of like, oh, wow, like that connects with something I read in that book, you know, last week or a year ago, like just to have those moments of synthesis and connection. I feel like it's easier to do that reading books sometimes than it is by reading a thousand tweets, you know, in a, in a two day period. Um, so those are a few things. And then I'll um, let Isaac talk and then I'll maybe I can share a few practical tips on what to read. Yeah. Share some more tips. I don't got any practical tips. <laughs> I get sucked <laughs> into reading it. Oh, that looks good. That looks good. Right. Oh man, that looks good. So what are your tips? Teach me the ways. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, like all of us, I'm overwhelmed sometimes with the amount of books on my to do to read list because there's so many books coming out, like, and so many people who I trust are recommending books. So I feel like I add, you know, 10 books a week to my like Amazon wish list, and it's more than I could possibly 
keep up with. So um, in the chapter on books, I talk about, I quote C.S. Lewis, so his famous introduction to uh, Athanasius um, on the incarnation. C.S. Lewis talks about like reading old books and the value of um, kind of maybe reading like uh, one old book for every new book you read or something like, uh, and I try to follow that, like, because again, the time tested nature of wisdom is a thing. And if we want to be wise, I think looking to kind of the the things that people have gleaned truth from for centuries is valuable rather than only reading the bestsellers of our current age, that kind of old book um, diet can help be a good check and balance against the anachronisms of our age. So reading diversely is another basic tip. I, I say like, yeah. whatever yeah. that looks like, like read, you know, if you're a man, like try to read like a good amount of books written by women. You know, <laughs> if you're um, a white person, make sure you're not just reading books by other white people like read books that are from different continents different cultures um you know i'm not the greatest with that um so i just added some books to my list um written by um, some non-western novelists and you know i just think it's good to constantly be auditing your your diet of authors and making sure that the perspectives that you're reading are um yeah are just bringing diversity of, of thought and experience because that's only going to make you wiser and it's not to say that you have to agree and that's one of the big points i make in the books chapter is there's this fallacy that like to yeah. read someone means you have to agree with everything they say and it's kind of a bigger problem in our society where we just we don't have capacity to like say i like that about that person's um writing or thought but i don't like that you know i like some things that politician says but i don't agree with that like that's just part of education is being able to like um entertain a thought without um admitting it you know uh it's part of intellectual growth and being teachable is allowing someone to maybe change your perspective on some things but not everything so yeah yeah, I'll stop there. Um, you know, with the pyramid being built, with the Bible and the church, both locally and the long, rich history of the church, nature, beauty, and now books, we get, we arrive at the top where, you know, it's the ice cream. <laughs> it's like the stuff <laughs> that's too sweet for you. You shouldn't have too much of it. You yeah. know, you want it. You know, it's calling for you. Just have a little more ice cream but you know you shouldn't sort of thing. Um, But you said it at the beginning and you include it in the pyramid. And I'm just going to talk about both of these together and you can differentiate as you go. The internet and social media. Uh, (laughs) Let's just get really practical here. Um, Mm -hmm. How, how should we think about ingesting ice cream into our wisdom diet? Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, what are some parameters to set or ways to think Uh about it? Um, mm-hmm. when we think about engaging the internet first and then social media second. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I lumped the two of them together. So I'll just kind of talk about both of them because I think it applies to both. Um, and the first thing I'll say is I'm not, and I don't want to communicate that these things are all bad and it's like totally toxic, 100%. Like there's plenty of great things to be found. And in fact, you can find truth and you can develop wisdom um, from the internet and from social media. And there's some great things that the internet and social media have offered the world, right? Like platforms of voices that were not being heard before. 
that's a huge thing for our wisdom as a culture to be able to hear voices that we previously didn't have access to. Um, there's a consensus element to the internet that I think can be good for wisdom. Think about like um, reviews on Yelp or TripAdvisor. Like all of us are kind of getting at the truth of a restaurant better because of the way the internet can kind of fuel consensus. Now there's bad parts of consensus as well. We could talk about that too with groupthink and the speed with which a mob can um, move. Um, so there's there's definitely good things about the internet in terms of how to approach it in a way that um, is helpful and conducive to wisdom. Um, a couple things that I would say is have a purpose. So don't just kind of casually, passively surf. I think that's where a lot of bad things happen on the internet is when you just instinctively open your phone the first thing you do when you wake up and you're passively scrolling or you just like go to Google without really a reason why, like mm. nothing good happens when that's your, your posture. So go with a plan, like have a purpose and um, yeah, don't be so, so passive. Uh, another like principle is just quality um, over quantity. So mm. um, minimize your time online and, and on social media, but, um, just make sure that you're spending it in quality places and following quality voices and, you know, who you follow on social media. Um, I would rather follow 50 trusted quality people than, you know, a thousand voices of chaos that are populating my feeds. And then um, similar to what I said with reading, I think diversifying your exposure is good with like social media. So making sure you're not only following people who think like you, who are part of your little bubble. That's that's why we're in such trouble with tribalism, I think, is it can be so easy to mute every voice that frustrates you. Um, and I think to some degree for your mental health, it's okay to do that. <laughs> um, we don't wanna be angry 24 seven because of what we see on social media, but it's good to be like challenged a little bit um, with your social media, um, feeds. So make sure that you have a little bit of a diverse, um, feed going on. And then, um, I think just the, just the pace. So we've talked about like how, how bad things can get when we're going so fast and whether it's appreciating beauty or taking time to read a, a book, like just slowing down in general is good for our wisdom. And that applies to the way we use the internet and social media. Like, Bad things happen when you are going so fast that you don't think before you tweet, for example, and you just let your emotions in the moment, you know, you just vomit something on Twitter and it doesn't help. Um, and the same thing with, you know, reading something on sitting like you oftentimes I see this dynamic where like you read an article on the Atlantic or an op-ed in the New York times and you love it. Like your, your gut reaction is like, man, that's awesome. I'm going to share it instantly. I think just like being able to like sit with something and like, let, let time um, be a natural filter. And if you still are like, that was a really good article. I need to share that, like share it later in the day. I try to do that as much as I can. Like there can, there can be this weird social pressure to like be quick to like, um, share something or add to a conversation. And I don't think that it often helps to do that. There's wisdom in like taking time to let, yeah, just consider it a little bit more. So yeah. slowness, slowness is a key, I think on the internet. Yeah, that's great. Um, as we wind down here, Brett, 
um, we've gone through the entire pyramid. Uh, super helpful. Again, I would encourage everybody to go find it on the internet, but also um, be on the lookout in February of next year when the book comes out. But uh, maybe just give a word of encouragement or challenge to our listeners who are, again, navigating this really, really strange world where it's just, you know, wisdom is not at the forefront of the stuff that culture at large is trying to cultivate in us. Uh, if anything, it's all stuff that's sort of counter to wisdom. Um, talk, you know, give us a word of encouragement and or challenge uh, sort of to wrap up uh, all of these ideas in terms of how followers of Jesus might cultivate uh, a life of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a matter of um, Christian witness in the world, and I think it's a real opportunity for for Christians to um, yeah, just to kind of redeem this increasingly toxic information landscape that we live in. Like, if Christians aren't the ones to do it, be, who will? Because we, as the pyramid illustrates, we actually have um, a sensible paradigm for wisdom, where where there's a hierarchy where we know, you know, God's word to us is the most foundational his creation that he created which speaks to us is a is a more important source of wisdom you know we have a logic to this that that people who don't believe um don't have so i would i would really just um challenge christians to see this in a, in a missional sense like this isn't just about you having um a little bit more of a a little more sanity in our crazy world like it's about you modeling for your neighbor, loving your neighbor by modeling um, a life of wisdom and by doing that through your habits of, of intake. Um, and um, in the conclusion to the book, I, I talk about three virtues that um, Christians can cultivate um, that, that kind of map onto the three problems that I talk about early in the book. So um, one is discernment in a world, in a too much world. So we can model um, just discernment in a world where there's just a glut of information. Um, we can model patience in a too fast world. So like we've talked about throughout this conversation in a world that's just speedy and doesn't take time to slow down. The virtue of patience is a major one that Christians can cultivate to be different and to model a better way. And then um, humility in a world that's focused on me. So if, if the kind of me centeredness of our world is creating chaos because each of us is our own island of truth, then um, humility is the answer to that as Christians, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, right? To not think that what we have to say about anything on Twitter immediately is what the world needs. <laughs> um, I think the quick to listen, slow to speak is, is, is really an idea that everything in the wisdom pyramid speaks to. Like, be quick to listen to the word of God. Um, be quick to listen to what the heavens declare through nature, what the trees declare, what, you know, the sky, what the weather, what the seasons declare, be quick to listen in a book to what other people have to say. Um, so just be quick to listen, be slow to speak, be humble, be teachable. Um, that is so wise. I think the, the wisest people I know in the world, and I, this is probably true in your experience as well. Like when I think about the wise sages in my life, they are the teachable one. They're the ones who, at age 70 are still learning, are still letting themselves be changed by um, ideas that they come across. Um, not that they don't have convictions, but there's a humility there, an intellectual humility. So 
those are just a few things I would say. Um, I think this is a pastoral issue. I think that the more I hear from pastors about how helpful this pyramid is, the more encouraged I am that this is this is a matter of just Christian kind of practice and habits and rhythms in our lives do shape us. They, they form us. And so paying attention to um, information and, and truth and how it filters into our souls is, is vitally important. Mm. It is true. It, it is an incredibly helpful tool. We're so grateful and glad uh, that you developed it. I, I'm ecstatic to hear that it's going to be a book. Um, I got, got it tattooed on my left arm, man. The Wisdom Pyramid. <laughs> it is right here, so I can never forget it, man. The Wisdom Pyramid. But it I'll has add that to our marketing plan ideas. Yeah, it has the keto equivalents <laughs> with the bacon yeah, yeah, and yeah, the yeah. eggs. And, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Brett. Seriously, thank you so much for not not just the Wisdom Pyramid, but uh, so much of your work has been uh, helpful and informative. Your book, Uncomfortable, mm-hmm. was influential for me in, in writing my book and the way I think about Christian community as a whole. Um, for folks who are interested in not just the Wisdom Pyramid, but just in you've written several books and you have so much stuff out there, where can they find you and connect with you, uh, irony of all ironies, on the internet and in social media? Where can they find you and connect with you? Yeah, I know. Talk about biting the hand that feeds you, right? <laughs> like I, my job is a digital editor for a website. That's my. That's what you just say. You can reach me at PO Box four two two. Yeah, right. <clears throat> um, so yeah, uh, brettmccracken.com. I have a website that has my book information, and I'll probably start updating that more regularly as the new book um, becomes um, closer to coming out. And then the Gospel Coalition is where I do most of my writing these days. So if you just follow. Um, follow me there you can read my latest work and i'm on social media twitter instagram although i try to be on it less than uh, i'm tempted to (laughs) awesome (laughs) brett we uh seriously so appreciate you and your work keep going and uh you're a tremendous voice and help to the to the local church so thank you so much thank you guys that's so encouraging it's fun to chat